Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Friday, uh, March 1st, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again. Uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal, the special edition of our program. The program features our regular Pan-African Newswire report that will have dispatches on the massacre of Palestinians in Gaza who are waiting for assistance uh, from humanitarian organizations. Talks have stalled on a ceasefire in Gaza. We'll have details on that as well. Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, has warned of grave consequences if NATO deploys troops into Ukraine. And Haiti is being threatened uh, with another coup. In the second and third hours, we begin a series on Women's History Month, uh, which will take place uh, all during the course of March. We'll have a focus on Eliza Mary Church Terrell, uh, the African-American activist, uh, suffragette, and fighter uh, for human rights and against uh, Jim Crow segregation. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of Mkaltum from the North African state of Egypt. This is a live concert uh, from 1962. Uh, Let's listen in.
مشغول مشغول وحياتي لك وحدك قولت على مشغول مشغول وحياتي لك وحدك ولك على طول الليل ونظاري فكري بيك مشغول مشغول وحياتي لك وحدك ولك على طول ولسه بتصدق حسود وعزود
بيت مشغول مشغول وحياتي لك وحدك ولك على طول ليل ونهار فكري بيت مشغول مشغول وحياتي لك وحدك ولك Oh, <laughs> 
Thank you. 
I'm 
broadcast uh, for Friday, uh, March the 1st, uh, 2024, and uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit, and we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to uh, yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. That was the music of the North African state of Egypt, uh, Um Kaltoum and her orchestra uh, from a live concert uh, broadcast uh, over uh, television and radio in Cairo in uh, 1962. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, uh, and our lead story uh, deals with the situation uh, in Gaza. Earlier in the day, al Mahadeen's a television correspondent that reported that the massacre of Palestinians occurred on Al Rashid Street to the west of Gaza City. Turkish-based news agency Anadolu Agency reported uh, yesterday, citing Israeli military sources, that the Israeli army deliberately opened fire on a group of Palestinians as they were waiting for humanitarian assistance. The source who requested anonymity uh, told Anadolu uh, that the shooting took place near the humanitarian corridor in southern Gaza. The Israeli occupation forces fired at Palestinians as they approached 
an Israeli force overseeing the entry of aid trucks uh, into Gaza City. The source attempted to justify uh, the massacre on the basis that the Israeli occupation forces, quote, sense danger as civilians approach them, unquote, prompting them to open fire. Uh, the source further stated that the army claimed a stampede occurred as they were trying to distribute aid. They blamed the crowded group for injuring other Palestinians and causing trucks uh, to strike civilians. According to an initial investigation conducted by the military, soldiers fired warning shots and targeted the legs of Palestinians as they approached a checkpoint overseeing the entry of the trucks. Considering the number of civilians who got killed in the event, the accusations are obviously incorrect. Uh, you can read uh, this story uh, in its entirety uh, over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. And in other news uh, taking place uh, in relationship uh, to uh, the situation in Gaza, senior sources in the Palestinian resistance informed uh, Al-Mahadine Television that Hamas's leadership confirmed that there would be no negotiations under the threat of starvation. Senior sources in the Palestinian resistance inform Al-Mahadine that relief for the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip is one of the non-negotiable of the Palestinian resistance in the first stage. Uh, these non-negotiables of the first stage, according to the sources, include the reconstruction and immediate rehabilitation of hospitals, bakeries, and public facilities, as well as the withdrawal of the occupation forces from the Strip and the return of the displaced to the areas of Gaza and the North without restrictions or conditions. As for the second stage, the Palestinian resistance stressed that no consensus would be reached without negotiations regarding Palestinian detainees and a permanent uh, ceasefire. The sources emphasize that Hamas communicated these non-negotiables uh, in a crystal clear manner, and they also represented other Palestinian resistance factions. They further confirm that Hamas's leadership emphasized that this message is directed at everyone who wants to reach uh, any deal. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin vowed yesterday to fulfill Moscow's goals in Ukraine and sternly warned the West against deeper involvement in the fighting, saying that such a move is fraught with the risk of a global nuclear conflict. Uh, Putin's blunt warning came in a State of the Nation address ahead of the next month's election he's all but certain to win, underlining his readiness to raise the stakes and the tug of war with the West to protect the Russian gains in Ukraine. In an apparent reference to French President Emmanuel Macron's statement earlier this week that the future deployment of Western ground troops to Ukraine should not be ruled out, Putin warned that it would lead to tragic consequences for the countries who decided uh, to take uh, such an action. And uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, taking place uh, on uh, the Caribbean island nation of Haiti, Heavy gunfire has paralyzed Haiti's capital as of yesterday, Thursday, uh, February the 29th, and at least four police officers have been killed as a powerful uh, gang leader announced that he would try to capture the country's police chief and government ministers. The move came during the absence of Prime Minister Ariel Henry, uh, who is in Kenya trying to finalize details for the deployment of a foreign armed forces to Haiti to help combat uh, the violence. Gunmen shot at Haiti's main international airport and other targets, including police stations, and a wave of violence that caught many people by surprise 
At least four police officers, including two women, were killed in an attack on a station near the community of Canaan, according to a police union. The violence forced the airport, businesses, government agencies, and schools to close as parents and young children fled through the streets in panic. At least one airline, Sunrise Airways, suspended all flights. Jimmy Cherizer, known as Barbecue and leader of the Gang Federation, uh, G9 family and allies, was seen in a recorded video announcing that the aim was to tie up the police chief and government ministers and prevent Henri from returning uh, to Haiti. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. We conclude this program by reminding our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to this program, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Friday, March 1st, 2024, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
track entitled uh, For Love Alone, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, this is uh, Women's History Month, and of course, uh, we're going to have a series of programs uh, focusing on the contributions of African women uh, from throughout the entire globe. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to focus on Eliza Mary Church Terrell uh, from uh, Memphis, uh, Tennessee, who was born uh, during the Civil War and, of course, became a highly educated and articulate, uh, focused uh, activist uh, dealing uh, both uh, with issues of racism as well as gender discrimination. Let's listen uh, to a discussion uh, with Allison Parker. Uh, who is the author of a political biography of Mary Church Terrell. Uh, Let's uh, listen in. And you're listening to the past. Good evening. Welcome to this evening's event, Mary Church Terrell, the face of African-American women's suffrage activism with Professor Allison Parker. The Frederick Douglass Institute for African and African-American Studies is proud to co-sponsor this event with the Susan B. Anthony Institute of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies alongside the Black Alumni Network and the Women's Network in partnership with Susan B. Anthony Center and the Paul J. Burgett Intercultural Center and Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence. I would also want to say thank you to our captioners and interpreters who are helping ensure that this program is accessible. Before we get started, I wanted to mention some few, a few housekeeping uh, things. Uh, might be helpful Zoom tips for you out there in the virtual world. 
If you would like to ask a question, please submit it anytime through the Q&A function that is located at the bottom of the screen. Today's event articulates an important part of the study of black life and black struggle, the role of intersectionality, particularly being black and woman in history and our present. As a black feminist thinker and doer, the importance of Mary Church Terrell as a visionary, educator, and activist within and outside black communities cannot be overstated. I remember reading a speech she delivered in 1908, a significant year for many of you out there, where she stated that, quote, the incomparable Frederick Douglass did many things of which I, as a member of that race, which he served so faithfully, am well proud. But there is nothing he ever did in his long and brilliant career in which I take keener pleasure and greater pride than I do in his ardent advocacy of equal political rights for women and the effective service he rendered to the cause of women's suffrage. Let us never forget that one of the forefathers of black studies was indeed a feminist. And today's lecture and its partnership is a key reminder that this legacy yet remains. Today we will hear more about the esteemed Mary Church Terrell from Professor Allison Parker. Allison M. Parker is History Department Chair and Richards Professor of African American, of American History at the University of Delaware. She has, a re she, has, she has research and teaching interests at the intersections of gender, race, disability, citizenship, and the law in U.S. history. Allison Parker is the author of two books, Articulating Rights, 19th Century American Women on Race, Reform, and the State, and the book from which her talk is drawn today, Unceasing Militant, The Life of Mary Church Terrell. As director of the Frederick Douglass Institute of African and African American Studies, I am glad to introduce Professor Allison Parker. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with you today. Let me work on sharing my screen. Okay. Um, hello. I want to start just by thanking John Cullen, Jessica Guzman Ray for inviting me and Caroline Tolbert for organizing this event, along with all the many co-sponsors. What I'd like to talk with you about today is Black women's suffrage activism through the life and activism of the feminist, suffragist, and civil rights activist, Mary Church Terrell. Terrell is best known as the first president of the National Association of Colored Women, or NACW in 1896, and as a founding member of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, in 1909. She was the first black woman to graduate with a bachelor's and a master's degree from a predominantly white college, Oberlin College, and she then taught at the nation's best segregated public school, the M Street High School in Washington, D.C., and was then appointed as the first black woman on its Board of Education. Carol had first publicly expressed her support for women's suffrage at the National Council of Women's Convention in 1891. The first large suffrage meeting which I attended was the one in Washington at which women who were interested in the subject were present from all over the world. Among the women sitting on the platform that at that meeting were Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Miss Anthony. 
The presiding officer requested that all those to rise who believed that women should have the franchise. Although the theater was well filled at the time, comparatively few rose. I was among the number who did. I forced myself to stand up, although it was hard for me to do so. In the early 1890s, it required a great deal of courage for a woman publicly to acknowledge before an audience that she believed in suffrage for her sex when she knew the majority did not. Carol's description of the reticence of women who had chosen to attend a major women's convention suggests that a pro-suffrage position in the 1890s was still a daring radical stance. Having attended a convention of the newly merged National American Woman Suffrage Association, referred to as NASA, Carol later recalled, when the members of the association were registering their protest against a certain injustice, I arose and said, as a colored woman, I hope this association will include in the resolution the injustices of various kinds of which colored people are the victims. Are you a member of this association? Miss Susan B. Anthony asked. No, I am not, I replied, but I thought you might be willing to listen to a plea for justice by an outsider. Then, Miss Anthony invited me to come forward, write out the resolution, which I wished incorporated with the others, and hand it to the Committee on Resolutions, and thus began a delightful, helpful friendship. Anthony subsequently invited Carol to speak to the Political Equality Club in Rochester, and acting on her social equality principles, Anthony hosted her as a guest in her home. Although Terrell was prominent and well-respected, she regularly described her status and the status of all Black women as inescapably circumscribed by race. A white woman has only one handicap to overcome, that of sex. Colored men have only one, that of race. I have two, both sex and race. I belong to the only group in the country which has two such huge obstacles to surmount. Terrell explained that African-American women call ourselves colored not because we are narrow and wish to lay special emphasis on the color of our skin, but because the, our peculiar status in this country at the present time seems to demand that we stand by ourselves in the special work for which we have organized. The members of the new National uh, Association of Colored Women came together in 1896 with Mary Church Terrell as their president to defend black womanhood by combating the intersecting forces of sexism and racism. And this is a photo from 1896. And here with the hat with the fruit and the feathers is Mary Church Terrell. Um, over here on the ground is uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett and her son, Charles Barnett above, who is in the hands of Alice Dunbar Nelson, a writer and activist in her own right. So leading black club women recognize that the struggle for the vote must extend full citizenship to all African Americans. Voting rights for black women were always inseparable from questions of black men's disenfranchisement and the broader black freedom struggle. 
Carol appreciated Anthony's personal warmth, but recognized that Anthony was increasingly ignoring the concerns of African Americans as she led a narrowing of the white suffrage movement's focus from a broader women's rights platform told the sole goal of gaining national voting rights for white women. Anthony and white suffragists also disrespected other black suffragists. In 1897, when Adela Hunt Logan, the accomplished lady principal of Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute, asked Anthony if she could speak at a NASA convention, Anthony replied, I would not on any account bring on our platform a woman who had a 10,000th part of a drop of African blood in her veins who should prove an inferior speaker because it would militate so against the colored race. Ignoring Logan's accomplishments, Anthony assumed that having an ex-slave at the podium would be a humiliating disaster. Unfortunately, Anthony and other white suffrage leaders focused so narrowly on white woman suffrage that they were willing to sacrifice others to achieve their goal. However, disingenuously, Anthony claimed that once women got the right to vote, racial justice would prevail, that any means to get women the vote would hasten the demise of both sexism and racism. At the 1898 National American Women's Suffrage Association Convention, a pregnant Mary Church Terrell gave a major speech determined to engage in social justice causes less than two months before her due date. Her husband wrote to her father exclaiming, she is the only colored woman invited to speak. The other speakers will be women such as Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Frances Willard. After the event and bursting with pride, he reported back, Molly immortalized herself last night before the Women's Suffrage Convention. She made a magnificent address in admirable style. The theater was filled with the best men and women of the country, and their reception of Molly's speech amounted to an ovation. To emphasize just how well her speech was received, he wrote that several white women went so far as to hug and kiss her when the meeting closed. White and colored people mounted the stage and fairly took her off her feet. It was indeed the greatest triumph of her life. Referring to segregation and racial barriers, he noted, when white women publicly embrace a colored woman, you know the reason for it must be strong. This speech and its reception allowed the Terrell couple to take their minds off of her fourth risky pregnancy and focus on their mutual support for women's suffrage. Fortunately, Soon after, they welcomed their first healthy living child, a daughter named after the Black Revolutionary Era poet, Phyllis Wheatley. Depending upon whether Terrell was addressing a Black or a white audience, she shifted her approach to the subject of women's voting rights. For instance, in her 1906 article, In the Voice of the Negro, she assumed that many of her readers would be Black men, and so paid a pointed tribute to Susan B. Anthony soon after her death. Although Terrell did not condone Anthony's move away from advocating for African-American 
uh, rights after the Civil War. She did point to the Reconstruction era betrayal of the Republican Party of white and black women's goal of universal suffrage as an explanation, but not a justification. Anthony and many other black and white women had been deeply disappointed when abolitionist men had rejected the goal of universal suffrage in favor of the 14th and 15th amendments that enfranchised only black men and not women of either race. In the decades after the Civil War, Susan B. Anthony solicited African-American men's support for women's suffrage without granting reciprocal support for their full citizenship rights. Yet, Terrell nonetheless appreciated what Anthony had done for the cause of women's suffrage. Much later, in 1928, for instance, Terrell was the only African-American woman to have her name inscribed on a plaque unveiled at a commemoration of Anthony and the early women's rights movement. Terrell's education and light skin tone gave her some access to white suffragists. She repeatedly tried to engage in an interracial dialogue by networking with and challenging white suffragists, including in more intimate social settings. For instance, in 1910, she wrote in her diary, I heard Mrs. Ida Harper, the suffragist and biography biographer of Susan B. Anthony, lecture on the evolution of the woman suffrage movement in an elegant apartment. Wealthy white women were present. When, as Terrell described it, Mrs. Harper criticized colored men for opposing woman suffrage. Terrell forcefully responded to the assembled women, insisting that white men have done the same. After women of the American Revolution helped to free white men from England's tyranny, these same men placed a yoke upon their necks and taxed them without representation, she reminded them. But later, during the reception, when Harper directly asked Terrell if she felt bad about her critique of black men, Terrell did not want to shut down her access to these white women and the spaces where she could make these challenges, and so she denied that her feelings had been hurt. Regardless of white women's stance, black suffragists always simultaneously pursued their own voting rights agenda. In 1908, for example, Terrell and other NACW leaders petitioned for a constitutional amendment to extend the vote to all women and asked for protections for black men's voting rights. One section resolved that we the members of the Equal Suffrage League representing the National Association of Colored Women through its suffrage department in the interest of enfranchisement and taxation with representation asked to have enacted such legislation as will enforce the 14th and 15th amendments of the Constitution of our country, the United States of America, throughout all its sections. They wanted black men to be able to vote. After all, any new woman suffrage amendment would be immediately undermined in the South, just as the Reconstruction Amendments had been, unless Congress passed strong and effective enforcement provisions and the relevant government agencies actually enforced them. In addition to public speeches and writings, Mary Church Terrell found more militant and direct suffrage activism appealing. 
Carol had long known of and admired the radical techniques employed by British women. For instance, she had recorded in her 1909 diary, I went to hear Mrs. Emmeline Pankhurst, the militant suffragette, and enjoyed her address immensely. Thus, Carol eagerly joined in a major direct action in the U.S., the 1913 National Votes for Women Parade. Alice Paul and Lucy Burns organized this huge suffrage parade for the National American Women Suffrage Association for March 3rd, 1913, which was the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. Alice Paul, a young college-educated Quaker, tried at first to exclude black women in order to pacify Southern white suffragists. Now, I'm going to take some time to describe what really happened for black women at this march, because it's something that most historians and popular culture have missed. Most historical and popular cultural accounts correctly describe the anti-lynching activist and suffragist Ida B. Wells Barnett's refusal to march in a segregated delegation at the back of the parade and rightly celebrate her defiant insertion of herself into an otherwise all-white Illinois delegation. What is less well-known is that this was not a solitary act of one defiant woman. From what I had learned of Carol as I was writing my biography, I could not imagine that she had agreed to march segregated at the back although she must have if Wells Barnett really was the only one who resisted. So I decided to research her participation more carefully. What I found is something that a few black women's historians had already told us, but that has not been accepted as the real story. Many dozens of black women, including Carol, marched all throughout the first suffrage parade in the nation's capital. Those black suffragists who joined state delegations were at the back, but only because organizers had a carefully choreographed chart for the parade and planned for all the states to assemble there. A black Chicago newspaper captured the scene that day. The equal suffrage parade was viewed by thousands of people from all parts of the U.S. No color line existed in any part of it. Afro-American women proudly marched right by the side of the white sisters. Carol served as a mentor to Howard University's new Delta Sigma Theta sorority, whose members organized to take action in politics and reform movements. Carol, who wrote the oath for the Deltas and became an honorary lifetime member, negotiated with Alice Paul on their behalf. The members wanted to march together. The key question was whether they would be able to march along with the other contingents of college women. A telegraph from the Suffrage Association to Alice Paul on the day of the parade capitulated to protests from black women agreeing that black suffragists could march without restrictions. Carol explained that when some of the white suffragists still objected to having the colored girls of Howard University march in the parade, it was Terrell's friend, the lawyer and suffragist Inez Mulholland, who insisted that they be given a place with the pupils of the other school. Dressed in their caps and gowns, the 25 Howard University Deltas marched alongside the other college delegations, not at the back. 
Mary Beard, the feminist and progressive U.S. historian, invited Terrell and other NACW members to stride alongside the New York City Women's Suffrage Party, which they did. Black women even carried the state banner for New York and Michigan. As as Carrie Clifford's recounted in the NAACP's The Crisis, Black suffragists marched as artists, homemakers, trained nurses, teachers, writers, college graduates, and musicians, among others. An editorial by NAACP leader W.B. Du Bois described the politics surrounding the participation of Black suffragists. The Women's Suffrage Party had a hard time settling the status of Negroes in the Washington Parade. Finally, an order went out to segregate them in the parade, but telegrams and protests poured in, and eventually the colored women marched according to their state and occupation without let or hindrance. Du Bois captured the fluidity and chaos of the situation, as well as the resolve of the black women who organized, protested, and won the capitulation of the white suffragists. If we better understood that black suffragists collectively fought for and won the right to participate throughout, we would have a different story to tell of black women's pivotal role in the suffrage movement. Despite their differences, Carol continued to admire Alice Paul's use of direct action. During World War I, she and her daughter Phyllis, then in her late 20s, were among only a few black women who are documented as having joined the National Women's Party in peacefully picketing in front of the White House. Carrying banners that called for women's voting rights, Terrell willingly risked arrest and violent attacks. The women who picketed were called traitors for protesting the U.S. government policies during wartime, but persisted nonetheless. Um, Thank you. I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have, including on how the story of women's suffrage fits into the larger biography of Mary Church Terrell. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Professor Parker. That was wonderful and a very uh, complex, actually, set of uh, conversations around Mary Church Terrell. Um, I'm from Chicago, so we say Terrell. I've I've known about it since second grade, which is funny. Uh, But uh, I think you all say Terrell. Which I, I well, get it. Her, fa- her family told me it's Terrell, so I yeah. had to, oh, I had so to change my. So, so that's okay. So that's yeah. even that's that's a southern uh, way of saying it as well. Well, if you would exactly. like to ask questions, we are here. Uh, Professor Parker is here to take questions from the audience. We really want you to ask any questions that might be on your mind. Um, you know, I can throw out one if I don't see any, but I definitely uh, think this is a great opportunity. Uh, to have some Q&A before uh, the panel that we're having shortly thereafter. I know you're out there thinking, so I'll I'll just ask a a very quick question. Um, Who would you say are some of the interlocutors of uh, Mary Church Terrell? (laughs) I'm trying, right? 
Um, you know, who would you say were her, her main interlocutors and those folks who had her, because I often think about who had her political ear, right? Who was in her ear uh, beyond Susan B. Anthony and those folks, but like who were the, the folks who she was in conversation with? Um, she was in conversation with a lot of other black women who are associated with a kind of early intersectional politics and feminism as well. She was um, a classmate of Anna Julia Cooper, who was another black intellectual, um, also went to Oberlin College, um, as well as Ida Gibbs Hunt, who was from another very uh, prestigious African-American family and spent time with her husband, who was an ambassador um, and served abroad. And um, then as time grew on, she met people like um, Mary McLeod Bethune and um, Margaret Murray Washington and a whole variety of other women. Since she lived, she was born enslaved in Memphis, Tennessee, and then um, that was during the Civil War, so she was only enslaved for two years, and then um, lived in Memphis until she went to school um, as a young girl in the North because her parents wanted her to get a better education, and they had set up their own uh, businesses, so were able to pay for her to get an education. And then um, she lived until 1954, the same year as Brown v. Board of Education. And so this incredibly long life means that she was um, friends with and collaborated with so many different kinds of activists because she was literally active for 60 years. So the part that I talked wow. about, I know, so the part that I talked about today is the tedious part of her story, but it's a very interesting part and it is the part that connects the most with uh, Rochester and uh, Susan B. Anthony and Frederick Douglass. She met Frederick Douglass at an inaugural ball um, for Harrison um, in the 1870s. And then um, when she moved to Washington, D.C., they became friends and collaborators, and he was her mentor. So they ended up um, inviting Ida B. Wells to come and um, give talks on anti-lynching right after uh, the murder of Thomas Moss and their other friends and collaborators in Memphis. Um, and that was in 1892, 1893. So she only um, worked with him for the last few years of his life since Frederick Douglass died in 1895. But um, she was she was the one who founded um, Frederick Douglass Day, the first day um, to really commemorate him in a public school system. And she did it because, as the quote that you had at the beginning said, he um, was somebody who supported suffrage from early on. And she really uh, appreciated that he was both he was an intersectional activist as well. Yeah. yeah, we got a lot of questions out here for you. So, look, I'm, I'm glad we, we primed, okay? Um, so one of the questions out here uh, is, did Terrell have a relationship with the League of Women Voters? Um, yeah, she did. I, uh, the League of Women Voters was not entirely open to black women early on. And um, they've actually taken some responsibility for that more recently and have looked more introspectively at their past. So she wasn't able to fully engage with them, um, although she would meet 
their members because their members were also members of other organizations that she was involved in. She was an active Republican because like almost all black women until the 1930s in the New Deal, they were Republicans as in the Republican Party, the Party of Lincoln. So if we think about it that way, that's where that came from. Beautiful. So what did Terrell's suffrage activism look like post the 19th Amendment? So after the 19th Amendment, she wanted to participate in the National Women's Party that Alice Paul had, in spite of the fact that she knew, or maybe because she knew, that Alice Paul was not going to take uh, black women's concerns seriously unless they inserted themselves in these organizations. So even as they always had their own organizations, they believed strongly in the need to have um, organizations that were um, they needed to join white women whenever they could. Um, so she asked Alice Paul if the National Association of Colored Women could be um, a member of the National Women's Party. And Alice Paul said no, because she claimed that it was not a party that or a group that focused on gender and feminism, but on race. So she was completely unable to see intersectionality. And so um, Alice Paul and Carol and several other women met together and had this kind of heated exchange. And Carol was allowed to come as a visiting delegate to talk at the um, 1921 convention. And she was a, a lifelong member of the National Women's Party, but she was never able to break through Alice Paul's very singular approach to white women's equality. Yeah, that's that's really, really helpful. Um, a couple more questions out here. Uh, we have about five more minutes, so it's great. Um, so this is a, 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 a big question. Maybe I'll, I'll couple them together um, in terms of thinking, how did Carol and others balance activism, careers, and family life? Like, what support systems did they have, networks? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, one thing that I tried to allude to uh, by mentioning that her pregnancy that was successful was her fourth, is that she had had a series of tragic um, situations with late miscarriages, a stillbirth, and then a baby who lived for two days, but then died in a segregated DC hospital with an improvised incubator. And she always believed that racism was involved. So kind of like Serena Williams, here you have one of the most elite um, and fairly well-off white uh, black woman of her day, um, who is unable to get good maternity care, right? So, so she really believed and felt the need to fight for black women's health and welfare and the health and welfare of their families. So when she became the president of the National Association of Colored Women in 1896, you know, she still hadn't had a successful pregnancy. And um, this was incredibly important to her. So she founded the first kindergartens for black children and helped um, create day nurseries, but also advocated for black women to become nurses and doctors because she knew what now scientists say is true, that black doctors and nurses provide better care because they're invested in the health of black women. So to do all of this work, and once she had her own baby, her mother retired from her career as a 
a hair salon owner and came down um, from New York uh, where she was living to Washington, D.C. to help be um, a child care provider for their child. And she had a very supportive husband who was equally interesting, Robert uh, H. Terrell, who had been enslaved for the first seven years of his life, but ended up graduating from Harvard University and getting a law degree from Howard University and becoming the first municipal court judge in Washington, D.C., who was black. So they were a power couple, and she could not have done what she did without his support because um, it was she was really stepping outside of the boundaries of what um, black and white women were expected to be doing. So she, he did receive pressure, but he was very supportive of her career. Great. Thank you so much. There's one last question pressing there that I'm sure a lot of folks are asking. And uh, one uh, contributor asked this question, which was, what would you say is the legacy of Mary Church Terrell today? Is it Stacey Abrams? I mean, is it Michelle Obama? Like, where do we find, where do you position uh, the legacy um, both of those women would be a good place to start, but also Kamala Harris, because one of the things that um, she was really interested in is Terrell was a political being. And she said if she had lived at a different time, she would have wanted to be a senator. And truthfully, I think she would have wanted to be president. Um, but she was unable to run. And so the, the best thing that she could find was she ended up working on a white woman's campaign, the, one of the first white women to um, win a primary, um, but she didn't win the election, uh, Ruth Hannah McCormick in 1930. Um, and it took another, I think, 30, 30 years for a white woman to win and 60 years for a black woman to win into the Senate. Um, so she was way before her time. But um, Kamala Harris in her um, acceptance speech actually mentioned um, Mary Church Terrell as one of her predecessors who had paved the way for her. So I'd like to make that claim as somebody who we could look to. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking time with us to answer these wonderful questions. And thank the audience for uh, these great questions and really being engaged. Uh, we now are going to move to our panel discussion. And so I am going to introduce my wonderful colleague, June Wan, who is the director of the Susan B. Anthony Institute of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies, and also an associate professor of German. My esteemed colleague, June, how are you? Hi, thanks very much. Um, thanks, Jeffrey, and thank you, Allison, for sharing um, your important and fascinating work. Uh, so Allison will be joined by our esteemed panelists uh, to talk more about the important role black women have played in changing the culture and institutions that have perpetuated inequality throughout the United States the challenges and repercussions they encounter, and the profound resilience they possess in the face of adversity, um, all in 20 minutes, <laughs> right? Uh, so clearly, we're not going to be able to discuss everything. But um, So let me start by um, introducing the panelists, and then I will essentially take a step back and let them speak with each other. Um, but you, the audience is also welcome to ask questions, and I will try to weave them into the conversation. Um, so the first panelist I'm going to introduce is Ananza Benbo. She, uh, class of 2015, who is using her passion for language and issues in education to host the Black Language Podcast, featuring conversations about black people and their languages. 
Um, Ananza, if you could turn on your camera, please. Um, the next panelist is Tiffany Taylor Smith, class of 1991, a doctoral candidate and assistant vice president for diversity and inclusion at the University of Dayton and co-chair of the University of Rochester's Women's Network. Welcome. And the last panelist is Brianna Theobald, an assistant professor of history here at the University of Rochester. Uh, she teaches classes on U.S. women's history and the history of Native America. Um, so maybe just to start off, um, we can have, I'll just throw out a general question to start the conversation. Uh, thinking about sort of stories like that, that of Mary Church Terrell, um, how, what role is, does the telling of these stories and of learning about people like Mary Church Terrell have for our current day, um, and maybe even sort of more personally for you as scholars, as activists? Would anyone like to start? <laughs> well, well, I'll take it. I, I think as, as a scholar and as a practitioner, even just hearing um, the work and research that Allison has done, which, thank you, Allison, I, part of it is like, okay, what, what intrigued you about this project? But that's a sidebar. Um, I, I want to thank you for your research and your work and sharing of that. And I think for me, as a practitioner in diversity, equity, and inclusion, even in our current climate, it is so important that we learn these stories. I mean, I continue, and I, I graduated from the university in 1991. I'm a mother of three daughters, um, and I still struggle. And, and someone who is pursuing a doctorate degree, the stories that were not taught to me um, as, as, a, as a high school student, as an elementary student, as a um, someone pursuing her bachelor's degree, unless I took specific courses, and someone who's earned a master's degree and is now pursuing her Ph.D., it is continuing to be clear to all many who choose to acknowledge there are a lot of stories that have been omitted from U.S. history um, in so many ways. And, and, and we're at this moment of truth, this is time of somewhat reconciliation, where we have an opportunity, particularly those who are in education, to really look at what are we missing? Um, and, and to benefit from, from Alice's work around how do we understand the story and what were the complexities that were involved in the experiences that she had um, in trying to move the, to move the movement, if you will, um, for women's suffrage and engage black women. And, and, you know, I, I, I often wonder too, as, as a, as a light-skinned black woman, how that influenced her ability to be in these spaces. As a light-skinned black woman, I, I find myself often puzzled by that as well, the way in which I'm received in different spaces and how that impacts my ability to ally, champion, or be an accomplice for others who are not in those spaces. Yeah, um, to add, um, I feel like as a young black woman, it's um, it's been really important for me to know that since enslavement and perhaps you know, beyond, Black women have always had an analysis of not just race, but where race and gender intersect. Um, and I think that that means that for Black people of multiple identities, sexual orientation, ability, class, that there's always been an analysis, you know, an intersectional analysis. Um, and so, sorry, I took some notes on this, and so I just want to make sure I'm getting everything, because I like the way I put it. Um, and so, 
Oh, yes. And so it means that, like, when current generations, like myself, are silenced um, or told that we're too sensitive, right, or told that we're making things up, like we're making up terms and we're making up, you know, uh, identities, where it's like, one, all terms and identities are, to some, you know, are, are made up. But two, it's like that just comes from complete ignorance. Um, it comes from lives meant to derail us when we know that we have always existed, right? This work has always existed. And so I think when we hear stories like that, um, and, uh, I think for those of us who are doing work, right, with our communities, it's really empowering, right, to know that, you know, black feminism did not start in the 70s, like will often be told to us, right? And that, in fact, you know, we've always been doing this work when I think about black women, um, doing birth work during enslavement, right? And so, like, we've always been intersectional about our practices. And so I think for me, when I think about these stories and think about my day-to-day work, in addition to the podcast, I also work at a high school. It's about how am I creating an environment um, that's safe for my students, um, that's safe for students with, you know, um, with multiple identities, and how am I, one, keeping up with the times and knowing how the world is changing, right, so I can be a better advocate for them. Um, yeah, so I, I think that that's, that's a, great, a great and such an important point to think about these long legacies of, of black women as um, black women and other women of color. So my own research is in um, indigenous women, Native American women, but um, so black women and women of color as theorists, right, doing, doing um, in, in various ways and through experience and so many other things, right, doing really important theory. Um, have this, these legacies of, of important um, um, intersectional feminist theory. And then the other thing that I was thinking of is, um, you know, I think with this, there's this way to, to get back into to Tiffany's point about how histories are told or not told, right? I, I think that there's this way in which sometimes when we think about um, activist histories, that the the activists can sort of, um, you know, it's like they're in the distant past, right? Um, and their lives are somehow just kind of decontextual. I mean, they are like activists, right? And so there's, we get this kind of pub, their public lives, some of their public work. And I think what, what, what I was thinking about that's really helpful about reading a biography like this, that really gets at the texture of, um, Terrell's, Terrell's life, right? As a, as a, um, a full person who's, struggling, right, going through all of these real struggles alongside her work, as, you know, so many people are, like, that's the reality, right, of, mm-hmm. of activist work and these histories of activist work. And there's a way, in which, as I was, as I was reading it, there is a way in which I think that looking at one person's life like that in such complexity and depth, and, and, and situating her in these, this evolving historical context can also serve to remind us in this moment, um, that we are also historical actors, right, in ways that I think sometimes, um, at least at the, the kind of student level, we can almost forget, right, that, that we study history in the past, these women's stories, um, but you think of so many of the issues, right, that she was, that it, with which Terrell engaged, um, maternal, uh, maternal health, right, and healthcare, um, educational curriculum, you know, 1619 project, right? How do we understand our histories? Um, uh, police brutality, um, voting rights, right? Um, I mean, so many of these historical 
um, issues are issues that folks are, of course, struggling with today. And I, I think it's useful to remember that we are historical actors in a historical moment that future generations and future scholars, right, will be analyzing as well. Yeah, I mean, you all raised such really interesting points. And I do think that when you look at the life of one Black woman in the past, we can learn a lot from that. And one thing that I think is important is this idea of taking people out of one particular moment in their life or one particular action that they're best known for. Um, like in her case, she's best known as the president of the National Association of Colored Women. But that was actually like the early, one of her earliest acts. And then she had decades and decades of activism after that. And just like Rosa Parks is, is pretty much known for sitting on the bus, but she was an activist for many decades before that happened. And um, people aren't aware of her big involvement in the NAACP, although there's been a lot of work now, especially through uh, biographies that have been coming out recently that have tried to help to kind of unpack some of that. And in the case of Terrell, I, going back to what Tiffany was talking about with her light skin color and privilege and how that played a part for her in getting access to white communities, she was aware of that and she used it to her advantage whenever she could. One of the things that she regularly did is go speak to governors about getting pardons or other ways to try to end death sentences to black women who were poor and uneducated and very dark skinned usually and who were in prison. Um, some of them were even teenagers um, with death sentences. And then after she would meet with the governor in the state, whether it was Virginia or whether it was um, uh, Georgia or other places, she would then go and get access to the women in prison and meet them there. So she wasn't an elite in the sense of elitist, that she wouldn't, uh, you know, use her, she used her power as much as she had it to try to gain access to people and help change their lives. So um, she was aware of that and what, but was very conscious about it. And um, she, the term unceasing militant that I used for the title of the book actually comes from a friend and associate of hers, the actor and activist and singer Paul Robeson, who described her as an unceasing militant in the struggle for black freedom. And so that was his um, obituary, in fact, for her when she died. And it seemed to me that it was a really meaningful thing to talk about her as someone who uh, was unceasing in her militancy, which doesn't mean that she also didn't make compromises or go uh, join these meetings with white women that were, you know, somewhat problematic because she always wanted to be in those spaces to be the voice of dissent. But it does mean that she also worked with communists. And she, um, you know, when the NAACP decided that it didn't want to take on cases of black men accused uh, wrongly of rape, like with the uh, Scottsboro Nine, she worked with the Communist Party to try to get them freed. So um, she was really willing to step out of line, if you want to put it that way, and to do direct action like the picketing um, that she started with um, 
the National Women's Party in World War One uh, and continued all the way up to the end when she led a successful campaign to desegregate Washington, D.C. in 1953, so before uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and before Brown v. Board. Um, maybe, does anybody have any questions within the panel for each other? I mean, I have some questions as well, but I wanted to give you a chance in case you have something that you would like to ask each other. One of the things I just wanted to, to raise, I think, is, is, is evident in the way that which Allison tells the story, and it's so important in what we see today. Regardless of our identities, even embedded in the story, you see other women who there were women who were against her participating because of her her race, but there were also women who advocated and allied and championed for her. And and even in telling the story, Allison, that you share with us, had those women not stepped up, there were certain ways in which she would have been blocked from being able to accomplish what she was able to do. And and for me, that raises the question. Given our positionality, regardless of our identity, how we advocate for others, what, whether they be LGBTQ+, um, Asian American, Asian Pacific Islander identities, um, as well as indigenous identities, like how, regardless of our own, how we advocate, ally, and champion, um, and accomplice in many ways, for identities that we don't belong to, how important that is. And I think that that's very transparent in your story, that there were those women um, and some men who were willing to say she needs to be a part of this. We need to have them in this space engaging in the suffrage movement. Well, and I would just add to that, which I think is a really important point, not maybe regardless of, but also very much because of, right? I mean, I think that the ways we're not something is also important. Um, and I'm saying this as a Korean American who does German Jewish studies, right? Um, that, the ways in which I'm not German and Jewish are very much about me being Korean American. And so I think um, when we think about allyship, it is also important to think about not only sort of what the, what the positions are that we're looking at, but what, where we're coming, where we're positioned within those things, right? Yeah, and one of the things that you make me think about is this question of being willing to be uncomfortable and to have difficult conversations and to put yourself in with people who are different from you and learn and listen and think about what they're saying and then try to figure out um, how you want to interact with that. And Terrell did that, but I think a lot of contemporary women have to do the same kind of thing with each other and with others to make this work. And it's the whole life balance piece for me, too. I mean, I, I didn't know the story about her um, four miscarriage, well, three, and then the fourth birth of her child. Like, that's the, the multiple dualities that we carry as women. We're not just these, these workers, these advocates, these social justice champions. We also have personal lives and really thinking about, I think that was the piece for me, just understanding the, the, the significance of that that that's not separate. Like that is a part of who she is. She was living and thankfully uh, through the support of her partner was really able to continue to do the work that she did. So again, that's one of those ones where I appreciate that being a part of the story as well. Um, I would, in thinking about Tiffany and Tiffany's kind of comments about allyship and um, 
and really coalition building too, right? And how we think about coalitions and in thinking about what, what June said as well. Um, so a lot of in my research and so my kind of intellectual and some political commitments, right? I'm very interested in, in reproductive justice, which is um, a, a term coined by black feminists in the 1990s, um, but that stems out of, of um, histories of, of um, reproductive oppression and also uh, long histories um, uh, of, of reproductive activism, right, by, uh, by black women and indigenous women and women of color. Um, and one of the things in, in that literature that I've really noticed as a theme is, because um, coalitions have been so important to, to this reproductive justice work. Um, it is a movement kind of based on, on coalition building. And they, they've been, they talk about um, this idea of solidarity through difference. Right. So that that actually like the, the process to, to kind of June's point of, of forming these coalitions actually requires some understanding in, in at least many of the situations in which they're talking about of understanding our differences, too. And I think so one of the ways that that becomes really important is actually understanding the differences in terms of, um, say, uh, indigenous women's relationship right to the state right and to their tribal nation and that their goals might be somewhat different um but that there's kind of room for ground if we understand each other and i think in the work that's come out on on suffrage um the historical work that's come out in the last couple of years right to to commemorate um, the centennial i think that there's been a lot of emphasis on the ways in which these different coalitions can actually help to expand the way we even think historically about Suffrage, right? For for many Black women, it was con- it was connected to racial justice. It was a, a tool, right, for racial justice. Particularly, lynching was important for for many Native women. Um, it um, it was it had a lot to do with indigenous with tribal sovereignty, right, and indigenous cultures. For many Hispanic women, I'm drawing on Kathleen Cahill's work here. For many Hispanic speaking Spanish speaking women in the Southwest, right, it was tied to and was a tool for language. And so I think that, like, when we know all of that, um, thinking about these coalitions that developed are actually in some ways all the more impressive and important to understand, right? Because that we don't get that story if we're just thinking about what, um, you know, what Rochester's own Sue B, right? How she was conceptualizing all this. And that, that, that makes it harder to understand, um, the, the, the real coalitions that developed at least at particular points. Do you, I mean, what do you all think then about, I was just coming back to where we started this conversation to think about sort of the ways in which we learn these stories, right? And I'm thinking about the ways in which there's sort of, at least in my educational experience, there was sort of African-American history, Asian-American history, right? And then white history was sort of the regular history, right? And so that these things are so separated that I think the reason why it's often surprising to learn about these coalitions is because of the way that we're taught these things or the way that we're under, we're sort of taught or we're trained to sort of categorize these things as this is this type of history or women's history more generally, right? That women's history is separated from sort of history, which is, you know, male history then, right? So um, I don't know exactly what the question here is. I guess it would just be, you know, what your thoughts are about um, ways in which you've seen sort of 
movements against this or ways to sort of undermine this particular sort of categorization? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess one of the things that I found useful about doing a biography of a black woman who lived from 1863 to 1954 is that it was a way to write a different story of American history. And by using her as somebody who I could talk about, there's a whole section on various aspects of her political transformation um, as African-Americans in general move into the Democratic Party and then also the um, smearing of all civil rights activists as communists as you move toward um, World War II and beyond in the Cold War era. And so just every part of this one person's life is also just a way to kind of reframe the history and to think more broadly and in a longer a period of time about what civil rights activism looks like. The civil rights movement often is seen as starting in the 40s or 50s, but if you think about a longer, and other historians have been trying to talk about, you know, how long is the civil rights movement and where, how far back can we take it? Um, but if you're thinking about it as a black freedom struggle, uh, you can take it pretty far back. And these women and men in coalition are absolutely doing that. Um, but her work intersects with all kinds of other groups and she's a pacifist and works with um, the International Women's League for uh, Women's Peace and Freedom and um, travels abroad and actually speaks five languages and is fluent in you know German and um, French and Italian and then teaches Latin and Greek. Um, and so she's somebody who has this incredible uh, facility with language and is the only black woman who appears as a representative and speaks at several so-called international women's conferences in Europe in the early 20th century. And she pointed out that it was um, a very bizarre thing to be the only woman of color in a so-called international conference. Um, but what that, I guess, really meant is that it was um, a European and American women's conference, right? So, so she tried to insert and think about how, how can I stand in and be the voice for all of these people who aren't here? Um, so that kind of liminality and the, the sense that she, um, could try to play that role is, is an interesting one. But, but I do think these coalitions are really important. Well, and this question of language too, right? I mean, um, this is, I'm sort of directing this towards Ananza, um, but this question of language and about sort of the ways in which, um, since you are doing a black language podcast as well, I mean, thinking about language and um, the ability to use language to sort of mobilize or the ability to use language to one's advantage, right? And um, so if you could say maybe something about that as well. Yeah, um, I definitely think of it in kind of like two parts, um, though not uh, separated. Um, but one, it's like, so 
Professor Parker just mentioned all the languages that Mary Church Terrell just, uh, spoke, right? And I'm definitely of the camp that used to say Mary Church Terrell. Um, so happy to learn something new today. Um, right? But it's about um, speaking languages across, um, across our communities, right? And so um, if I'm thinking specifically about black women, right, there's black women all up and down, um, you know, the Americas and throughout the world who speak different languages, and by and large, many people are going to learn how to speak English as an additional language across the world because it is such, um, well, the United States has made it so it's a useful language because of the oppression that the United States has caused, right? And so, but it really should be our responsibility to learn the languages of the diaspora, right? So learn the languages that are spoken in the Caribbean, um, learn the language, you know, uh, of, of black women in um, in South America and thinking about like the Garifuna communities and all the Creoles we have in the Caribbean and the West African languages and languages across the continent that we have in order to um, build because the struggle for black liberation, right, is global and so that's important. And then I also think about it um, where it's like language is always changing um, and it will always change and that's what it's always done and so sometimes I laugh at people who are like such sticklers about like you know the English language you know and it's like you know you can't end a sentence with a preposition it's like well people do it all the time it comes out naturally you know um, and it's funny because many things that people will be sticklers about now would be considered you know improper and shamed upon you know hundreds of years ago right and so language is constantly changing and so um, the movement um, and movement building is really a place where people are so creative and expansive when it comes to thinking about language and we think about new terms that we get. And so when um, young people are pushing the bounds for what language can do, as older people, we really have to let them do that, right? We have to let them explore their identities um, and explore how they connect with each other through language. Um, and um, and we can't police that, right? So we can't, you know, police and tell them how to do what they're doing. We kind of just have to watch them and, like I like to do, learn from them, right? Because what they're really doing is moving us to a space that is more inclusive. It's more gender inclusive, right? Um, when people, when young people are able to speak there are varieties that aren't standardized English. So we think about, I mean, there's so many varieties. Um, and so we think about like African-American language, we think about Chicano English, we think about Appalachian English, like there's so many different types of Englishes across um, the country and throughout the world. And so when we allow, um, I was going to say students, because that's what I work with, but when we allow young people, um, you know, access and safe spaces to use language comfortably and think about how do they want to use language to represent themselves, I think they build a more inclusive movement or movements. Um, and then I also think about about it like language accessibility. And so um, can people join the space and participate based on the language that they use? And so having sign language interpreters is important. Having um, interpreters for other languages is also important. And it can't be a situation where it's like, oh, well, you know, nobody who um, needs sign language interpretation signed up. And it's like, no, we have to provide it and people will come um, because that is, you know, historically how people have been excluded. They don't see themselves represented and they don't see their languages spoken. And so when we offer that to people, right, then I think we can start to see that um, community building. Um, we're almost out of time, unfortunately. Um, so I'm going to ask sort of one final question to each of you, um, which is, 
all of you um, in your role, in various roles, um, and most every one of you has multiple roles, um, are working to change the culture and institutions that have perpetuated inequality um, by sort of foregrounding the voices of those historically left out of the conversation. Um, and so for those in the audience who are looking to do the same, what advice or sort of last words do you have for this is for, for them? I, I'll go first. I'll take that. Um, I think the big piece of this is, and we've talked about this in, throughout the theme of this evening, is really being able to listen. Um, I have my story. I have my journey, where I grew up, who I grew up around, where I went to school, what I learned, you know, in my 52 years of life. But it's so important for me to be able to hold my truth, but also be able to listen to others and, and to be able to understand that even though their story may be very different than mine, uh, their, their experiences may be very different, that I can still hold my truth and appreciate theirs as well. And then understanding how I can be an ally, a champion, an accomplice, for them as well, and it doesn't have to be an either or. It can be a both and. For me, I feel like I kind of just said some of the selfless language, right? And so, how, so like more tangibly, right? So when we're hosting events, when we're you know um, having you know rallies and you know things like that, um, right? Having multiple languages available for people, and um, I mean, what's really nice is like we are in the community. Like multilingual speakers are in the community, right? And so it's not something where you have to like go out and find you know in like some directory that's like you know and like. I don't know, something that's just, like, inaccessible. But, like, there are people, you know, on my block right now who speak tons of languages because I live in New York City. Um, but we do exist everywhere. Um, and, and then the other thing is um, um, a quote kind of spoke to me um, throughout the presentation. Um, Zora Neale Hurston said it, and it was something like, if you are silent about, um, if you're silent about, like, your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. Um, and... The first time I heard that quote, I freaked out because I was like, wow. Because I, I was a student when I heard that because um, at the time that I was a student, and actually today's the anniversary that myself and other students from U of R were released from prison in Ferguson, not prison, but were, were released from jail in Ferguson during the Ferguson uprisings um, uh, in 2015. Um, and so, uh, or sorry, 2014. Um, and so... I remember, like, looking at pictures and images and, like, kind of seeing everyone's reactions, right? You have some people who are super stoic. You have some people who are really expressive with their face, right? And that's when my friend had said that quote to me. It's like, we have to be loud. We have to make noise. Like, you know, we have to let um, white supremacy, the state, know that, like, we are not happy. We are not content with our living conditions. And so when I think about, you know, what can we do in our life, um, I think it's speaking up. Um, at moments when, you know, we notice that there's something wrong, right? And it sounds like simple and cheesy, but I feel like it kind of just starts with that, asking people questions. What did you mean when you said that? Um, you know, um, can you explain, you know, what that means? Or, you know, or why would you say that? Or that makes me uncomfortable, right? Because when we let people, um, right, you, you know, use their biases throughout healthcare, throughout education, throughout, you know, the different sectors where black people have to interact. And when we don't check them on what they're doing, um, right, it just allows it to continue. Um, so 
I actually really hesitate to, um, I mean, I feel like that's like the, the moment to, to, that's like the closing moment, right? Um, but I, I, so I, I think I would just kind of echo that. Um, and it also maybe the piece that I might add is to, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, um, in part because I've been teaching about, about a lot of local history and, and black women's activism in Rochester. Um, and so I, I, I guess I'm thinking about this kind of as connected to place, right? And the beauty of this virtual world, right, is that for better or worse, we are, many of us are in different places right now. But um, I, so this is going to be a little bit different depending on where you are. But I mean, I think for those, you know, who are in Rochester, um, I think that it kind of echoes with what I said before, um about being aware of yourself like as a historical actor and that would be this is touching on yeah a lot of of themes but so you know being aware of um inequities in our various communities right including university communities um you know there is a a long history of um black freedom struggle in rochester that is very much ongoing and i think it's just important to be uh, very aware of that and understand this as like connected this long history and then i would also note we are also on um Haudenosaunee homelands right and specifically the home, homelands of the the Seneca nation um that's another piece of this place right and and understanding these histories that we need to um listen regarding right that we need to pay attention to and that we i would suggest be ready to to speak out about right as as Ananza so eloquently said so i would just leave that with this this kind of place based piece as well yeah, I think these are all really wonderful words of wisdom. And I guess the only thing that I might add is that I think that the life of Mary Church Terrell and other Black women activists really points to the question of persistence and a determination to be militant more than once and to not give up hope if one action or set of actions doesn't work. Um, and, you know, in her case, she did multiple kinds of activism and had meetings with a variety of people like every day of the week, practically. And uh, if one thing didn't work, like if boycotting didn't work, they tried picketing. If picketing didn't work, they tried suing. You know, there's always something. And so um, I think for young people, especially the notion that um, we have one summer uprising of 2020 and the world will change. Um, might be putting too much um, hope and uh, effort, effort placed in one moment or one surge, but to realize that it has to be more sustained and that we have to continue working on these coalitions and on strategies. And that would be what I would take away from it. Well, thank you all so much for this conversation. Um, thank you, Allison. Thank you to the panelists. Um, and thank you to the audience as well. Um, there is going to be a slide, I believe, with upcoming events, <laughs> or I was told there was going to be one. <laughs> um, yeah, there we are. <laughs> there it is. Uh, so please take note of them. And, um, and once again, thank you and good night. <laughs> Welcome back, and uh, that was a discussion uh, with author and academic uh, Allison Parker, who wrote a political uh, biography of Eliza Mary Church Terrell.
And that is our introductory uh, segment on Women's History Month for 2024. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Friday, March 1st, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for uh, this week. I can't stand the rain against my window, bringing back sweet memories. Yeah, when the rain, do you remember how sweet it used to be? Welcome back. That was Ann Peoples uh, with the track entitled I Can't Stand the Rain. And uh, in between 1948 and 1950, uh, the Destination uh, Freedom uh, was a radio broadcast out of Chicago, uh, which focused uh, on uh, the history of African-American people. They did one uh, segment, one program on uh, Mary Church Terrell. Uh, let's listen to excerpts uh, from uh, this radio broadcast that was put together by Richard Durham, who was a script writer and producer and radio personality uh, during this time period in the city of Chicago. Destination Freedom. Destination Freedom, 
Dramatizations of the Great Democratic Traditions of the Negro People is brought to you by station WMAQ as a part of the pageant of history and of America's own destination, freedom. Of an American woman, the late H.G. Wells once said, Turn the pages of this plucky woman's story of the broadening streak of violence and injustice through which she has lived her life in her own country, and I wonder what answer will America give to her. The woman was Mary Church Terrell, and in a chapter entitled The Long Road, Destination Freedom turns the pages of the Terrell story. woman, Mary Church Terrell. The pages of my story began at the close of the Civil War. On the threshold of that new age, I was born. Born in Memphis, Tennessee. Unheralded, unwanted. It's a girl. At a time like this, the Almighty sends us a girl. It's neither the time nor the place to raise one. No, no, it's not the time for any child. I wanted none. A boy, he'd have a chance. But in this section of the South, where they're struggling to throw us back into slavery, a girl. Oh, I wanted no children at all. None at all. So, I was welcomed. And in the wreckage of the Reconstruction, I grew and quietly wondered at the split personality of the social system that spawned me, that preached one way of living for white folks and demanded a different way from black folks. And I asked my mother why I was unwelcome. Must you keep asking me that? I'd like to know. You'll get to see for yourself soon enough. You'll know. But how will I know? When you don't have to ask, you'll know. Now go on out to get your schooling. Your father and I have work to do. So I would go out to school and to play and to wander across the street where a boy I knew, Tom Moss, also wandered. And who would call to me? Oh, Mary. Hey, you want a piece of apple? Go on, take it in. <laughs> well, uh... I'll go on, bite. You got a small mouth. Hey... Hey, that's a nice bite. <laughs> hey, your mouth ain't as small as I thought it was. Well, I did the best I could. And your best is plenty good. Hey, you going my way? Come on. You walking down Cottonwood Street? You're not supposed to. <laughs> it's for white folks only, the sign says. Hey, but I hear your old man's going to buy a house on it. But my mother says we're not... She won't stop him, because he's right. I'm going to be like him one day. Ain't going to be no streets where I can't walk when I get bigger. Hey, Mary... You ever read the 13th and 14th Amendments? Yes. You know, our folks used to be slaves, but all that stuff's ended. It's dead. Ain't no more slavery, so them white signs don't mean a thing. The Constitution says everybody's free and equal, and I intend to stick by it like And Tom and I, children of newly freed slaves, would wonder the world around us. And already there was a militant man in his outlook that I longed to have. And when I asked him... How he got that way, he said, I'm a man. I'm supposed to fight for what's my own. Your pa says. And just what am I supposed to be doing? Well, you're a woman. 
You're supposed to just sort of keep out of the way. Your pa said. It was true. My father had said this. And one evening when I came home, he took me over to our new house on the corner of Forbidden Cottonwood Street. I stood with my mouth open. All right now, girl, stand aside. Least a woman can do is keep out of the way of those who are busy. Let the moving men by. Wagner! They're coming, Church. Yeah, we're coming. Well, this way. Stand aside, girl. You hear me? Uh, here, here, boy. Right. Uh, uh, hold it a while. Uh, easy now. Easy. Ah, uh, uh, there. You see the sun uh, setting? Don't stop now. Get my furniture in. Well, I see the sun setting, Church, but uh, do you see what else I see? Way down the end of Cottonwood? I've got eyes. Yeah, it's a mob. They've been collecting like buzzards since I heard you were moving on the street. I know that. Well, then you know that all they're waiting for is nightfall. Uh, my advice, Mr. Church, is take your wife and daughter away. I hired you to move me, Mr. Wagner. Well, that's what we're doing. When I need advice, I'll ask for it. Church, if you had someone here to help you fight off the mob if they attack you, it'd be different. Uh, all you got is two women. Now, I'll tell my boys to take the furniture back. You... Hey, boys. Yeah. yeah. Mr. Wagner, I've paid you. You go on. If you insist on it. I do. But, but you're a fool, John Church. A fool and his life soon parted. All right, boys. Uh, heave on that furniture. Now stand right. aside, girl. I stood aside as the movers piled furniture into our house on the Forbidden Street. That night, my father kept a restless watch. And outside, a mob, intent on preserving white supremacy, milled about and shouted. And through the night, as our vigil wore on, my father called. Mary. Yes? Not you, your mother. Mary. Oh, what is it? They're still waiting out there. Well, let them wait. They won't go away until they are driven away. Oh, but the police, the they police are... The police won't help as you know it. If we stay cooped up, they'll swarm around until... One gets enough nerve to shoot through the windows. Then they'll come in at us like, like hungry dogs. Oh, John, why did we ever move here? Because our fathers longed for this freedom, even more than we have. And by George, no one is going to drive us out. Well, well what are we going to do? I'm going to meet them. Oh, John. It's you... better to go outside and convince them and wait and let them take us. I've gone, Mary. Oh, convince them of what? That slavery is over. My gun. Good. Now step aside, girl. I stepped aside. And though my mother snatched him, the ex-slave went out to convince his ex-masters that he indeed was free. And we huddled in the house and heard shots in the street, heard the uproar and the rioting, and listened as it died out. And when the overdue dawn drove the night off, there was a knock on the door. I went to see if Father had won his house or lost it. I'll go, girl. You stay here. All right, Mother. She tiptoed to the door and opened it. It was Father. He came walking in. No, three men, the movers, were helping him walk. They brought him past me... And then I saw the back of his head and cried out, Father, you're hurt. Uh, hold on, Mary. Uh, yes, John. 
Didn't I tell you to keep the girl out of sight? Oh, I did, but... Well, why do you stop and stare, too? Wagner. Yeah. Uh, take me up. My... My head. Oh, John. No, no, not quiet, ma'am. He's hurt bad, but I think he'll pull through. He drove him off, all right. Just step aside and let us handle it. I think he'll pull through. And she stepped aside and took me with her and told me why she'd not been anxious for a child. Now you can see. Oh, for a short while around here, while the reconstruction was on, there was a growing freedom, and poor white men and Negroes were coming into their own. But before you were born, a reaction tore down the work of the reconstruction, the free voting the equal education. And I could see we were heading towards a new kind of slavery. No mother wants to see her child suffer prejudice and bigotry. Now, you see, I did see. And I looked closer at the life around me and tried to adjust myself for the task ahead. And finally, when Father had recovered, he said, you won't have to adjust. You're not to live in it. I've decided to send you somewhere else. Where? Somewhere where freedom and justice are more than ideas. Where men are working at it. I've made arrangements for your education. Though I don't know what you'll do with it. I wish you'd been a boy. You could be useful. Well, however, girl that you are, do the best you can. Now we've got work to do. Stand aside, girl. I stood aside quietly and prepared to go north to school. And Tom came by to say goodbye. <laughs> well, well, the little Miles girl's leaving Memphis. Huh? Oh, Tom. I just came over to help you pack your suitcases. Uh, brought you an apple, too. Want a bite? Well, that's nice of you, Tom. No, 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 I, I'm not going to let you bite this time. I think I'll, I'll cut it. <laughs> My folks say you're not going north. You're staying right here. I'll be here when you come back. Wouldn't it be easier for you up north? Mm -hmm. Might be. It's rough here for anybody believing in the 13th and 14th Amendment. But I'm staying. But why? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because my people are here. Maybe because my folks helped build this country. Make it worth living here. Anyway, I'm sticking south. <laughs> Even if I'm lynched for it. Yeah, besides, I've opened up a grocery store up on Market Street. Did they tell you about that? I hear on Market Street they're driving out the Negro merchant. Well, I'm a Negro merchant, and I'm still there. And I'll be there, Mary, when you come back with your education. I'll be there. I left Tom and all the people I'd grown up with and went north to Oberlin College and studied the history of my country. Grew up, got married, and then came home to settle down. I came home to a welcome that was different from that which was greeted by my birth. 
Welcome home. Welcome home, Mary. Yes, we've gotten together a little surprise party for you, Mary. Welcome home. My eyes were wet and my heart was full. Oh, now, Mary, don't look so serious. <laughs> Welcome home. <laughs> Why, you've been away from Memphis now ten years. <laughs> Not many Memphis girls come on from college with two, three degrees. <laughs> and Mary, look look at these gifts. <laughs> Everybody you ever knew sent you something. Oh, look. Where's Tom Moss? Young Tom Moss? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, he's an up-and-coming market man now, you know. I'd like to see him. Well, it, it's time he got here. Uh, yes, he... Welcome back. That was uh, excerpts uh, from Destination Freedom, a radio drama program on African Americans uh, that was produced and aired uh, in Chicago uh, between 1948 and 1950, and that was a segment on uh, the legendary Mary Church. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for tonight. And uh, you've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, a special edition of our program. Uh, focus on Women's History Month uh, here in 2024. If you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out with the music of blues singer Lil Green. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
took you in, babe, right off the block. You was beat and raggedy as a mop. Now tell me, babe, please tell me, what have I done? You going to be sorry you treated me this way? You gonna warn me, babe, I'll be far away. Now tell me, babe, please tell me, what have I done? And you smile. 
smile And I realize it seems stars fell out of the sky What's the matter with love? You got me feeling blue I can't believe that it's true What's the matter with love? I tried hard a long time To get you to change your mind Now love me Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.